uh, okay. It's pretty cool. Cockpit of the Millennium Falcon. Hit this switch right here. Oh, I guess I'm powering it up. What happens when I hit all these switches? Oh, I'm lifting off. No, that's not what I want. Um, okay, I don't have Glenn with me. I don't want to take off yet without him. If I just pull back on this lever here, this will lower me back down to the ground. Oh no! Now I'm in hyperspace. I have a bad feeling about this. I'm gonna have to do this episode solo. This is the way. We want it men. Welcome to another edition of the Smuggler's Galaxy Podcast. By now, you're probably realizing something's not right, and your ability to sense things in the Force is pretty keen. Sadly, Glenn isn't here right now. He's at the Georgia Alliance of Star Wars Collector Summer Social, our annual summer get-together at Narayan's house, and I'm at a wedding. But if I'm at a wedding, how can I be here now? How could I be in two places at the same time? What is existence? Anyways, it's just me and you, dear listener, hanging out in space with the fastest piece of junk in the galaxy, the Millennium Falcon. Wait, what's this? There's something here on the dash. Aluminum Falcon? Wait, is this a cheap bootleg? Dang, Ferrick. You know, it's just... That's how my life goes sometimes, you know, things don't work out the way you plan and you think, well, at least here I am in the Millennium Falcon hanging out with you and it's some cheap knockoff. I'm not into bootlegs and I really don't care about the Aluminum Falcon. Man. Well, here we are, just me and you hanging out. Hello? Are you there? Can you hear me? Looks like your radio isn't working either. Maybe it's one of those one-channel things? I don't know. I'm just going to assume you can hear me and keep going. Maybe I can keep your attention a little bit if you're driving in your car to work or running errands or doing whatever. What should I talk about? I'm up here flying solo. Hey, why don't I talk about that? My second favorite movie in the Disney era. Solo, a Star Wars story. Did you know the story of Solo starts before the Disney era? Back in 2012, George Lucas hired Lawrence Kasdan himself to write the screenplay. Lawrence, as you know, is a Star Wars fan, co-wrote The Empire Strikes Back and The Return of the Jedi. Once Lucasfilm was bought by Disney, they hired Michael Arndt to work on the screenplay for the movie that would eventually become The Force Awakens. But Lawrence was brought in to consult on the film, which eventually turned into another writing duty with J.J. Abrams when Michael Arndt stepped away. 
When that happened, Lawrence's son, Jonathan Caston, helped rewrite Solo with his dad. It was the first time the two wrote a screenplay together as father. It was the first time the two had ever written a screenplay together as father and son. Jonathan, being a geek like us, added some of the geekier details. For example, in the scene where Hansel is being chased by a TIE fighter, he does a landing maneuver where he drops the Falcon's landing gear on an asteroid and kicks up rock into the atmosphere, spraying it out behind the Falcon to damage the oncoming TIE fighter. Han says something like, A little something I picked up from my pal Needles, best street racer in all of Corellia, till he crashed and died doing this. This is a direct reference to Needles, a character played by Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers in Back to the Future 2 and 3. Flea played a character named Needles. It's things like this that Jonathan has an appreciation for and he put into the screenplay. With a script in place, the movie needed directors. And Lucasfilm, at its infancy at Disney, hired young, fresh directors to tackle these new movies. Gareth Edwards had only made two movies before turning his attention to Rogue One. Josh Trank was in a similar situation when he was hired to direct the Boba Fett movie. And for this solo movie, they turned to Phil Lord and Chris Miller, directors of the 21 Jump Street movies and the Lego movie, to helm this production. Once these pieces were in place, it was time to find their young Han Solo, which was probably the biggest challenge and hurdle to tackle. How does someone replace Harrison Ford in one of his most iconic roles? Several actors were considered for the role, which included Miles Teller, Dave Franco, Scott Eastwood, and yes, that's Clint's son, and Taron Edgerton. A little-known actor named Alden Ehrenreich won out the role among them all and was cast in May of 2016. Actor, writer, singer, and comedian Donald Glover, who earned my ever-loving dedication because of his role in Community. I mean, that guy could do anything and I'd watch it. He was quickly cast as Lando Calrissian, which is perfect. Just absolutely perfect. It sounds like I'm man-crushing here, and maybe I am, but I'm probably not. But if you want to speak about crushes, there was a female lead that needed to be casted as well. Tessa Thompson, Naomi Scott, Zoe Kravitz were all up for the role of Kira but it was the mother of dragons herself, Amelia Clark, who was cast in the role. Woody Harrelson was casted in 2017, shortly before filming began, to take on the role as Han Solo's mentor. A month after filming began, Phoebe Waller-Bridge was cast as the droid L337, Lando's companion in a CG-driven performance. Star Wars Red Cup, as the film was called during production, began filming in January of 2017. You'll hear movies have code names like this for many reasons. Famously, Return of the Jedi was called Blue Harvest during production, a horror film title, to try to reduce people's curiosity in the film. If they read that a movie called Revenge of the Jedi was being filmed, production would have been swarmed with people surrounding them in the desert as they filmed the cell barge scene. However, if you title your movie Blue Harvest, people will be less curious and walk away. Even still, a few people did check out the production of Blue Harvest, and they wondered why C-3PO was in a horror film. The other reason they rename movies like this is a legal reason. Now, I don't pretend to understand all the legality of it, I'm not a lawyer, but I do get the intent. You set up a shell company called Red Cup, and if anything goes wrong, and people sue the production, they can only sue Red Cup. They can't come after Lucasfilm or Disney, so there's 
different levels of protection built into these kind of things. And these code names tend to have multiple meanings. Red Cup, when you think about it, it's kind of an ingenious title. So filming began on January 17th and it was going well for, seemingly well for six months when a plague hit the set. And no, I'm not talking about COVID. It's too early for that. I'm talking about a sickness that affects a lot of production, the dreaded creative differences plague. Phil Lohr and Chris Miller were fired as directors in June 2017. After he was fired, Chris Miller tweeted at one point, Situation Normal, referring to the scene in the original Star Wars when Han Solo said that to an Imperial over comms in the prison hold. The situation at that point in the movie was anything but normal. It was almost a panic. So, we don't know for sure what exactly happened on set. We only have bits, pieces, and speculation. A journalist like myself would never entertain falsehoods and rumors, which is why I won't dive into them here today as I talk to you aboard the Aluminum Falcon. Except, I'm not a journalist. I'm a mediocre podcaster sitting alone in knockoff Falcon talking to himself. Now well, let's get into it for a few seconds. The first possible reason was an actual creative difference between the production and the directors. Lord and Miller were known for comedies, and while Star Wars has moments of levity in it, one wouldn't consider Star Wars to be a comedy film. When asked about it in 2018, Donald Glover said, I think there was honestly a miscommunication in artistic vision. And to illustrate that, look no further than the deleted scenes on the DVD. In one scene aboard the first light, Dryden Voss's elegant yacht, Han Solo struggles to eat floppy tentacles. It's sort of set out like a buffet, and he picks up these red tentacles, and each time he tries to put it in his mouth, the tentacle flops away from him, and he needs to come at it at a different angle. And when he comes at it at a different angle, the tentacles flop away again. It's slapstick, it's fun, but it doesn't fit anywhere in the movie without sticking out like a sore thumb. It doesn't fit the tone of the rest of the film. I'm not sure exactly who directed this scene, but my gut says it wasn't Ron Howard, who was hired to replace Lord and Miller shortly after they were fired. The scene just doesn't feel like the rest of the movie, which makes me think this is something that Lord and Miller were working on. Another reason, another alleged reason I should say for their firing was the director's alleged encouragement of improvisation from the cast, something they used with great success for their version of 21 Jump Street. Said Lawrence Kasdan, when you go to work in the morning on a Star Wars movie, there are thousands of people waiting for you. And you have to be very decisive and very quick about it. When you're making those split-second decisions, and they're a million a day, then you're committing to a certain tone. Improvisation can lead to trouble. Pre-planning in a movie like this is essential. Improvisation can lead to trouble, it can lead to delays, it can just disrupt the entire production. The crew needs to know how to light the set, where the green screen needs to go, what set needs to be completed and by when, because each day of filming costs money. In a 2017 Hollywood Reporter article written by Kim Masters, when referencing Lord and Miller, one crew member said, you have to make decisions much earlier than what they're used to. I don't know if it's because there were two of them, but they were not decisive. Kim went on to say production department heads began to complain while the pair appeared to listen when told of festering problems, this person says their approach did not change. On the flip side of this, the directors felt like, now it seems like I'm beating them up, 
and it's all their fault. On the flip side of this, the directors felt like they had zero creative freedom. Their process is just simply different, and the need to plan could have felt stifling to them and, and disrupt their creative process. According to that same Hollywood Reporter article, Kathleen Kennedy, president of Lucasfilm, did try to send Lawrence Kasdan to the set to help smoothen things out between all parties, but Kasdan was the writer, and the directors were trying lines on, on the set that were not part of the script. As a writer myself, I imagine it wouldn't be easy to watch your words get tossed aside as though you didn't carefully put consideration into each word choice you made. In the end, the director and the material were too mismatched for what the company wanted their movie to be. And again, I want to just reiterate that I'm not anti-Lord and Miller. I think they're pretty talented, and I'd be very interested in seeing what they could do with the material. But also consider that the original tone of Rogue One was a war movie, and Tony Gilroy was brought in to help steer the movie back to being a Star Wars movie, not a war movie. What is a Star Wars movie? I think it's just a tone. It's action. It's adventure. It's comedy. It's exciting. And when you mix all of those pieces together, you come up with a Star Wars movie. It's not all comedy, and it's not all action. It's just that mixture. And I think Rogue One got too far away from being that tone. I think Star. I think Rogue One was just too much of a war movie, and it was just all about action. And they needed to steer it back to what it needed to be. And I think Lucasfilm had just gone through retooling Rogue One late into the process of production and they wanted to prevent that from happening as soon as possible which resulted in Lord and Miller being let go from production. As I mentioned before in July of 2017 Ron Howard famous for directing movies like Backdraft, Willow, Apollo 13, Cocoon, Splash, A Beautiful Mind and much more was brought in to finish the film. He had to shoot about 70% of the script. Solo, A Star Wars Story, was released on May 25th, 2018, the only Disney-era film released in the original Star Wars Memorial Day release window. It had a budget of about $280 million, one of the more expensive ones because of the production delays, and it ended up grossing $393 million. In this movie, we meet Han Solo, a young Karelian orphan who hangs out with the lovely Kira, Along the way, Han meets Tobias Beckett, a gunslinger who makes high-stake heists for a living. And he also meets his future soulmate, Chewbacca, a 190-year-old Wookiee. We see Han play Sabacc with Lando Calrissian, and lose only because Lando swindled his way into winning the game. We see the castle run completed in 12 parsecs, we're rounding that number down now. We also see the disguise Lando uses to sneak into Jabba's palace. It's used here by Beckett to sneak into a Kessel mine. We learn that Kira becomes part of the insidious Crimson Dawn, a gangster organization that found ways to make money by slipping between the fingers of the Empire's iron fist. Han finds his heart of gold, and we see the faint sparks of a hero he is destined to become. He wins the Falcon from Lando. Kira takes advantage of her position and becomes a second in charge of Crimson Dawn only behind Maul, who's the head gangster of that organization. And Han and Chewie blast off into hyperspace in pursuit of new opportunities. It's inferred they are going to Tatooine to meet a big-time gangster. Oh, and we also see Han shoot first. I think it might be wise to take a moment to talk about the lack of success for the movie. And I think there are three contributing factors as to why it wasn't as successful as it could have been. Number one, did the audience want to see a solo movie without Harrison Ford? 
Han Solo was a career-defining, career-launching role for Harrison Ford. He was shot into the stratosphere and became one of the biggest blockbuster actors of all time. And there was a reason why Han Solo resonated with so many people. It's because Harrison Ford was that character. He, he, he gave the character a golden heart, which resonated with the audience. People loved him for it. And I just don't think they wanted to see a, a solo movie without him because he is Han Solo. It's not like James Bond where they can recast the character and, you know, people might say Sean Connery will always be James Bond, but think about all the success afterwards and, and the audience is used to the recasting. They expect it at this point now, you know, with uh, Harrison Ford being Han Solo for so long, for, for more than four decades, I don't think the audience was going to accept anyone else. Secondly, we have to talk about The Jedi in the Room. The Last Jedi was released six months before, and many people were upset with the direction that movie went. Now, I don't want to get into that, but I do think that the dissatisfaction of some fans led to them taking a break and sitting this one out. Six months is not a long time, and I think a lot of people still had a distaste in their mouth. Topped with the fact that it wasn't Harrison Ford, they felt like this is one Star Wars movie they could skip. And finally... I think the last contributing factor for why this movie wasn't successful is the marketing. I remember having a discussion with someone when Rogue One came out and they were wondering why the First Order was going back to using a Death Star and it clicked in my mind that even though we're drunk on the Kool-Aid, some people just sip it and they don't live in Star Wars world and they don't know the timeline and they don't accept things the way that we do. When you think about how movies are released, they release part one, and then part two, and then part three, so it would make sense that episode seven would be followed by episode eight, which would be followed by episode nine, which would be followed, and so on and so on. And that's not the case. We, as we all know, Rogue One is a prequel. It takes place even before the original trilogy. But still, for people who are not in the weeds, and they're not inside baseball, and they don't know exactly what powers the X-Wing and, and so on and so forth. To them, Rogue One was a sequel to Force Awakens. I think a lot of people question why somebody else was playing Han Solo. And why was Han Solo back? Because he was killed in The Force Awakens. And this is the kind of stuff that the marketing team was up against. And they didn't establish that. They didn't establish in the marketing that, you know, years before he was known as Han Solo. Years before he blew up the Death Star. He was a young person. There was no establishing the setting in the trailers it was just jumping into here is Han Solo and people not sure why is Han Solo suddenly looking different why is Han Solo younger why is why are why are there so many changes what's going on where does this fit in the timeline that's things that the marketing team was up against and they didn't address it they just assumed that oh it's Star Wars people are going to come but that's not the case you still have to do your work you still have to go for the people who don't no Star Wars like the back of their hand. And all these reasons combined are, I think, the reasons why this movie wasn't as successful as it could have been. Given another time period, if this was released today, it probably would be more successful. But we'll never know, and we just have to live with the fact that it is what it is at this point. You still there? I don't know if you've seen the movie or not, but I prefer you to see it than me to jump into a, uh, a detailed plot summary and now, I don't have any hard statistics to back this up, but I would imagine if I put m the back of my hand on the forehead of the Star Wars community, I would suspect there would be a fever for more Solo. May 25th, the anniversary of the original release date, has been hashtag Make Solo 2 Happen Day 
for two years now, and several individuals in the cast and crew have noticed. Some of these people include director Ron Howard, writer John Kasdan, Jonas Sutomo, who played Chewbacca, Aaron Kellyman, who played Emphis Ness, Ray Park, who played Darth Maul, and many, many more, including some of the crew members of production. Now, Disney has announced the Lando Disney Plus series, but with very but very few details followed that announcement. We don't know if Donald Glover is returning, Alden will be returning, Amelia Clark will be returning. We don't know anything, but it would be a sin if they all didn't make some sort of appearance. And I have to give credit to Alden Ehrenreich. He really pulled off the impossible. While I missed Harrison Ford in the role, he did a great job as the young, scruffy-looking nerf herder. He even captured that patented Harrison Ford point-and-get-angry move that he does. If you don't know what that is, Google it, Harrison Ford pointing, and you'll see all the different movies that Harrison Ford does that in. Alden did that in this movie as well, and, and it just really helps sell the fact that he's kind of trying to embody Harrison Ford as Han Solo. A few months into production, they, hi they hired an acting coach to help Alden channel Han Solo, and I think they were very successful. I'd very much like to see him return to the role. Prior to the movie's release, I was hoping for Han to run into more original trilogy characters. I wanted to see Greedo, Boba, Bosk, Jabba. I wanted more Underworld. While we didn't get that, unfortunately, except for that six, maybe six-frame cameo of Boba Fett, which was a serious blink-and-you'll-miss-him moment, maybe Han will appear in the Boba Fett show. We don't know, but I, I'm, I definitely want more of that. Some of the things that I love about this movie are some of the plays it has on iconic Star Wars movie moments. Every Star Wars movie, as you probably know, features a I have a bad feeling about this moment, which is also an Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of Crystal Skull, but Solo has a I have a great feeling about this instead. Everyone remembers that I love you, I know moment in The Empire Strikes Back, here on the sandy beaches of Savarine, with the falcon torn apart, broken and sparking, the pissed off Lando tells Han, I hate you, to which Han throws an arm around Lando's shoulder and says, I know. I love that flip of the I love you, I hate you, I know kind of play. I thought it worked really well. Also, there was that bit when Han tries to threaten Lady Proxima with a thermal detonator. It's just a stone, but with all of Han's tall tales, how he rounds down the Kessel Run to 12 parsecs, we can almost envision him telling Leia many, many years later that it was a real thermal detonator in his hand and not a stone. And Leia uses that story to rescue Han in Jabba's palace by using an actual real thermal detonator, which just goes to show you how much more of a badass Leia is than Han. Lastly, there was one piece of Star Wars trivia that is very in the weeds, very in uh, in-depth baseball, but I think that we should. I think it should be called out. Phil Tibbet designed the Dejeric pieces, as we probably all know, for the um, Dejeric table in A New Hope. But there were three characters that he modeled that didn't end up in the final film. Those three characters were actually used in Solo: A Star Wars Story, and you can see them on the table when Chewie plays against Beckett when they first get on it. But when Chewie gets mad for losing a piece. He slams his fist against the table, resulting in the table sparking, and he damages the table. The three figures from the game disappear, and they are never seen again in the Star Wars movies. Another thing that I like is that we see that Han has a thing for brunettes, and not just any brunettes, those climbing status in the world. Leia jumps the ranks in the Rebellion to the point where she becomes a general and a leader. Kira is climbing the ladder in the underworld, becoming second in charge of a major criminal organization. These are two women parallel to one another, but on the opposite ends of the good versus evil spectrum. But enough about the production troubles and enough about the making the movie. 
one would think that because it had such a troubled production, the movie would be would be flawed as well. But that's anything but the case. It's a real gem, a really great Star Wars movie, filled with swashbuckling adventure, excitement, romance, comedy. John Powell's score soars. It's got some John Williams moments because he composed Han Solo's theme, which he never did for any of the movies. So here he had the opportunity to do that, and he did. And it really works. What, what the heck was that? Jeez, oh, it's a TIE fighter. Hold on. Whoa, 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 they're flying. There's something. Let me try this. But you know, we are a Star Wars collecting, action figure collecting podcast. We focus a lot on that. So let's, while we're in hyperspace here, let's dive into some of the toys that were released for the movie. Solo was the last Star Wars movie to receive its own toy line in 3.75 inches. Though the packaging didn't say Solo on it. Instead, it followed the last Jedi aesthetic. For that movie, the toy makers used a white card with a bold red Star Wars logo on it and some red lines going through it. That line didn't include the name of the movie on it either, opening up the toy designers to include figures like Obi-Wan and Emperor Palpatine, even though they didn't appear in The Last Jedi. For Solo, they used a yellow golden Star Wars logo and included characters like Snoke, Imperial Royal Guard, and Darth Vader. And with each subsequent toy releases associated with the movie, the number of toys released with each movie declined. There were more than 20 figures released with The Last Jedi and Rogue One, and about 35 figures released with the Force Awakens packaging. There are only 20 figures released with Solo. And this doesn't include the two packs or any of the figures released with vehicles, just the single carded figures. So you can kind of track the decline in production that Hasbro made throughout the Disney era. Now these, fi these, and these initial figures only contain five points of articulation if you're concerned with that kind of stuff. Stormtroopers are always difficult to track down. And at first the Minban Stormtrooper was a tough one to find. I was able to pick up mine early. I'm very thankful to have one. Though now you can grab one for about 12 bucks. It's not too expensive. But when the when that action figure first hit, hit the shelves, it was tough to track down and it was costly to get on the secondary market. The line also included a Range Trooper, Stormtrooper, Chewbacca, Kira, Moloch, Rio Durant, L3, Tobias Beckett, Val, Han Solo in Mud Trooper disguise, and Quay Tolsite. Lando Calrissian came in a two-pack with a Kessel Guard, a muddied Chewbacca and Han Solo came in another two-pack, and finally Rebolt and a Corillian Hound were packed together as well. Rebolt had a blink and you'll miss him cameo as he pulls Kira from the doors as they were closing on Corellia, separating Han from Kira, and Han going off on his own adventure and Kira getting pulled back to Lady Proxima. I think it stinks that a character like Rebolt, who only had maybe two or three seconds of screen time, gets a action figure. There were so many different aliens and creatures that deserved their own action figure from this movie. For example, there was Therm Scissor Punch, whose name alone should justify a figure. Think of him as a giant prawn with lobster hands. He plays Sabacc during the first game between Han and Lando. There was also Argus Panox, a creature who was reminiscent of Re Yees from Return of the Jedi but he had th six eyes instead of three. 
Han Solo was never available as a single carded figure on his own. He was only available through the Force Link device, which is a device you wore on your arm. And when you placed the character's foot on it and you moved the Force Link device, you would hear dialogue from the movie come out from the device on your arm. In addition to that, there was a mission on Vandor 1 4-pack with a range trooper, Kira, Han bundled up for the cold weather on that planet, and Weasel, a character played by Warwick Davis. In case you didn't know, this is the second time Weasel appeared in a Star Wars movie. The first time was in The Phantom Menace when Warwick cameoed during the pod racing scene. Target had an exclusive six-pack of figures featuring the Imperial group. They included a Stormtrooper, a Minbam Stormtrooper, so he's muddied and dirty, an Imperial Patrol Trooper with no bike, a Mud Trooper, a Mud Trooper with Han's face, an Imperial TIE Pilot. Finally, we come to the 3.75 vehicles. Emphis Ness was available with her speeder bike. The youngest version of Han Solo in a black and white vest was available with the blue speeder he zips through the Corillian streets with, and a vestless, black-shirted Han came with the Millennium Falcon itself. The vintage collection included some of these characters as well. VC-123 was a Mimbam Stormtrooper and a Walmart exclusive here in the United States. That figure had a soft goods cape. VC-124 was Han Solo in his brown vest, which he wears a couple times throughout the movie. I love the card back on this one. Alden is oozing all the Han Solo vibes as he has one hand on Han's iconic belt with a half smile. The Falcon was airbrushed in the background. VC-125 Emphis Nest came with a soft goods cape. And VC-128 was a range trooper, and unless I'm mistaken, that's all the Solo representation we saw in the vintage collection line so far, which I say is criminal. I have a hard time believing Hasbro would ever return to this solo well to bucket up more figures for this line in the future, but one can hope. Finally we come to the Black Series. They released more figures from Solo than I remembered. A 62 in that line in the red box line was Han Solo in his brown jacket, followed by 64 the Range Trooper who had furry soft goods around the shoulders and ways to protect them from the cold weather on Vandor 1. One can almost imagine that being a wampa pelt just attached to the armor. I mentioned soft goods because number 65, Lando Calrissian, despite being a fashion forward with his cape and scarf, those weren't soft goods. They were sculpted plastic and not soft at all. Rumor has it to this day, you might be able to find the Lando figure for $5 at your local Ollie's Bargain Outlet. He was available there for years. 66 was Kira in her early Karelian outfit, black skirt, red shirt, and white jacket. 68 was Tobias Beckett in a trench coat. 71 was Val, who was played by the incredible Thandie Newton. She had little to do in the movie, but was great in every scene. 72 was the Imperial Patrol Trooper. The lack of a speeder did get to collectors, and many have 3D printed their own model to go with this figure. Number 73 in the line was L337, Lando's droid. 77 was the Ardenian Rio Durant, played by Mandalorian godfather John Favreau. Lastly, 79 was Dryden Voss, a character with scars on his face that flush red when he was angry. To copy that effect, Hasbro added a cold, sensitive paint to the figure, and when you put this character in your freezer, the scars on his face would go red, it would react to the cold. The Mimbam Stormtrooper was a Walmart exclusive again here in the United States and tough to find. I have a lot of fond memories of this. My son actually won one of these characters at a Star Wars celebration. He had no interest in Black Series before this. And when he received this character, his eyes widened with amazement. He turned to me with his mouth slacked open. I could hear him today saying, I have my own Black Series figure. I have very fond memories, like I said, of this character because of that. And, and this figure holds a top shelf placement in his room today. 
as the stormtrooper painted muddied with soft cloak over his shoulders. There was a deluxe Moloch, a slug-like creature from Corellia with heavy capes. You could remove the mask and see the character underneath. This species has to protect themselves from UV light or their skin will burn. Moloch was originally a Target exclusive, which became a peg warmer, which became a clearance peg warmer. And he stayed on clearance for a long time until eventually they dropped that price so low that people were just like, all right, fine, I'll take one. There's also the vehicle collection in the Black Series, number 05, which was Amphis Nest and her speeder bike. A lot of detail in this figure, a lot of soft goods. There was the puffy vest and, and capes. Really well done figure, and um, I'm glad to have that one in my collection as well. Denny's also had a major sponsorship for this movie, which included collectible plastic cups with the Millennium Falcon as a topper on top. There was four offered but I couldn't bring myself to frequent Denny's enough to collect all four. I only have Han, but I hope to get the rest one day down the road. I know some collectors also managed to score a solo branded Denny's menu to add to their collection. I never did that, but kudos to you. But that's it for, but that's about it for action figures. I know there was tons of Funko, there was Disney store exclusives, there was wind up bots that would fight as seen in the middle of the movie. And that's about it for a majority of the Hasbro collectibles available for Solo A Star Wars Story. The legacy of Solo A Star Wars movie doesn't seem to be as far reaching as I felt like it would be, or should be, but I do hope it gets folded into future stories, just like Rebels and Clone Wars have been folded into the Bad Batch. I truly hope that this Lando Calrissian Disney Plus series doesn't forget about Kira, Han, Maul, Jabba, Lobot and all the other characters we've grown attached to through this journey across a galaxy far, far away. What's that flashing? I'm pulling myself out of hyperspace. Oh, here I am back at Earth. Well, I guess this is where I'm gonna leave you. I need to find a place to land, which might take some time. I hope you enjoyed this retrospect on Solo, a Star Wars story. Glenn will be back next week. And if you missed him and you feel like this ep episode suffered without him, come back next week. I just want to say thank you for listening. I hope you don't mind the constant change in format that we've been doing these past few weeks. Um, we're doing something live. We're doing something in the studio. We're going back and forth. We've got this episode. It's just been a very, very busy summer. And we're doing all that we can to get episodes out every week. We're trying to keep up the quality. And hopefully we'll find a way to return to the normal schedule in August, normal format. Until then, please leave a review for Smuggler's Galaxy Podcast wherever you download and listen to us. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We have a YouTube channel, and we hope to make more videos there in the future. So if you have the time, go on to YouTube or find us on Facebook, and you can like our YouTube channel that way. Until we cross paths again in the future, this is the way. Harrison here, real quick. Just gonna ask him a couple of questions because Star Wars is family. Um, what's more important to you? You're, you're about to turn 14 years old 
And so you've got a different perspective than us older generation. You know, you love Star Wars, you love Rebels, you love Bad Batch, you love Clone Wars, you love all the new movies. You know, the original trilogy, what are your thoughts on that? They're cool. Yeah, but honestly. Well, I like them. Like, uh, I like them more than the prequels, but I, I like the sequel trilogy more. Yeah. And, like, what's your favorite of the sequel trilogy, taking out Rogue One and Solo? Uh, Force Awakens. Force Awakens? Why is, do you, can you say why that one's your favorite? No. Not really. Um, and then, alright, so let's go look at all the Disney movies, including Rogue One and Solo. What's your favorite? Uh, Rogue One. Rogue One. Of all, all five of those movies. Mm-hmm. And if you threw in The Mandalorian, as if it was like, let's say, two movies, season one, season two, what would be your favorite there? Like, out of The Mandalorian seasons? No, like, if Mandalorian was, like, a movie itself. Because it's like eight hours, right? Mm-hmm. So would you enjoy, rather sit and watch The Mandalorian for eight hours, or would you rather watch The Force Awakens or Rogue One? I'd rather watch the movies. Okay. Cool. Um, so the other thing I wanted to ask you real quick is action figures. Obviously, I'm a big action figure collector, and you've kind of at times said, yeah, I want that, but then you kind of back off, and you're like, no, I don't really want that anymore. Like with the clones, you wanted the clones for a while, and you were like, no, I don't want that. Um, what is it? Is it that you just want to play with toys? I mean, you're 14. Well, uh, I like to have a display of them, like, doing an action, like, in a battle or something. Yeah. But that's about it. Mm-hmm. You don't play with them anymore. No. Too. Um, well, and, and the other thing, kids nowadays, they, they get skins on video games. Mm-hmm. So if I were to give you 15 bucks and you had the choice, what would you buy? Would you buy a skin or would you buy an action figure to display on your wall? Well, I don't like microtransactions, and I guess it depends on, like, what action figure it is. So you would buy an action figure instead of skin? Well, yeah, because I don't like spending... Because, like, a gift card, I would spend that online, but real money, I don't like spending that online. Okay. Cool. What's your favorite Star Wars video game? Uh... Fallen Order. Fallen Order? Mm -hmm. And why? Because it's story mode, or is it... I like the lightsaber combat. Okay. And you can customize it. Mm-hmm. What was your favorite level on that game? Uh, the one where you get the, the like, lightsaber and you can split it, the Jedi Temple. Hmm. It was cool. I didn't like the villains on Dathomir. The Knight Brothers. Mm-hmm. Those guys are tough to beat and they were scary. What did you think about the ending? Oh, the ending was really cool. Yeah, we don't want to spoil it for anyone out there, but the ending was really cool. Mm-hmm. All right, everyone, that was a bonus with my son to try to get a, a younger perspective on Star Wars and Star Wars collecting. Thanks for sitting through this Easter egg. Um, hope you stay to the end end because uh, this is a secret special for those that actually stay past the credits. It's an end scene, end credit scene, so way to go. All right, thanks, Harrison. Bye. Oh, wait. What do you think about having your name as Harrison? Uh, I like the name. Okay, cool. That worked out well for you.